Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Senate President Matt Huffman and House Speaker Bob Cup say they need an extended schedule on the gerrymandering case because they've got to pass congressional maps. But guess what? Yesterday, they let their deadline pass for them. I guess they don't really need the extended schedule after all. It's the first day of October on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. And I know you're glad to hear Happy Friday. Yay. Happy Friday. Oh, boy. We started before the podcast talking about beach glass, so I can tell what kind of weekend somebody <laughs> might have. <laughs> Let's get going. How can Ohio's Supreme Court Justice Pat DeWine say he has no conflict of interest in hearing the gerrymandering case in which his dad, Governor Mike DeWine, is a major player and witness? Leila Tassi, this is the definition of preposterous. It's the definition of a conflict of interest. Are these guys just so drunk on power that they think they can abuse all the rules? I know there should be almost no debate here. Justice Pat DeWine has recused himself on other cases involving his dad and the decision that the decisions he's made as recently as last month. He said he wanted to avoid the appearance of impropriety, so he decided to withdraw from a case challenging Governor DeWine's decision to end enhanced federal unemployment benefits. And in May, he did the same on a case challenging the governor's coronavirus-related restrictions. He cited his father's extensive personal involvement on the issue as the reason to recuse. But in the redistricting cases, Justice DeWine said his, his dad was just one of seven members of the Ohio Redistricting Commission, which approved the maps. All right, but, 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 but hold on, hold on. He's one of seven members who said when he passed them, they won't pass court muster. He's a, one of the signature witnesses in the case. This is crazy, man. He can't, There's no way that's not a con- And we talked to people who said, yes, there's no way this isn't a conflict of interest. I, I'm, I'm kind of shocked here because, you know, first we had all the elected leaders, secretary of state, the auditor, the governor, the House speaker, the Senate president repeatedly violate the Constitution in designing these gerrymandered maps, which we've articulated. Now we have a Supreme Court justice just throwing out the conflict of interest law, just ignoring it completely and saying, I think I can sit. What's going on with the, the, the government in Ohio where it's just decided not to follow any rules? I know. And and, you know, his his reasoning is he says that that his dad has considerably less influence over the commission than he would over a Department of State government. And that also uh, he's not a member of the legislature and the district lines don't affect DeWine personally. So there's no basis for. OK, but 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 that is more crazy than the previous statement. These lines do affect Mike DeWine, a super majority of Republicans in the legislature makes them veto proof. So it has a huge effect on the governor. What happens with these maps? This is this is crazy. You know, Andrew Tobias got a hold of this late yesterday, put the story up. I don't think we've had time 
to find out what the recourse is. There's got to be a recourse to, to forcibly remove somebody who refuses to adhere to the rules. I don't know if it's the chief justice has the ability to remove him or you have to go to a panel of three judges, but there's no way he can sit. I should point out, He's up for re-election next year. This ought to be a reason to, to create a campaign to oust him because he's not doing his job. He is in full violation of legal ethics. Yeah, well, and apparently in 2018, there was a disciplinary complaint against Justice DeWine after he didn't recuse himself from from cases involving his father uh, while while his father was a, the state attorney general. But the three judge panel in that case dismissed it. And, you know, they acknowledged the judicial ethical standards forbidding judges from hearing cases that involve family. But they said that, you know, the totality of the circumstances have to be considered when disqualification and the relevant factors include, you know, whether Mike DeWine not, you know, personally, you know, whether he was a personally appearing in any of the cases and, and yes, you know, yeah, check <laughs> yeah. and whether he had financial interest in, in, in any of the cases, which, you know, not necessarily not in this one, but, but yeah, he is going to be called right. as he is a defendant in these cases. He is going to be deposed. There is no way his son can sit. No, it, it, I, I, you know, what was funny is I said the other day, I can't imagine that DeWine won't recuse himself. And Andrew sent me a note. He said, hey, I heard what you said on the podcast. I hear he's not going to recuse himself. And I, I mean, my jaw was on the floor. This, that's unimaginable. He's got to get off this case. And, and his, his poor judgment and saying he could stay really should be a factor in his reelection campaign. I don't imagine this will stand. I, I just can't imagine he's going to get to hear this case. But and it's but I, I get back to why doesn't anybody seem to think they have to follow the rules? I mean, we, we, we're, we're not really living with our representative government anymore. They're doing whatever they want. You're listening to this week in the CLE. <laughs> President Joe Biden nominated three people to be judges on the federal branch in Cleveland, and they are all remarkable for different reasons. Lisa Garvin, they're surely not as bad in judgment as Pat DeWine is. Who are they? <laughs> well, it's a virtual rainbow coalition of nominees to the district court for the Northern District of Ohio. Um, we have a woman, we have a Hispanic man and a black man who are being nominated. Of course, they have to be confirmed by the Senate first. But uh, Bridget, me and Brennan, she's the acting U.S. attorney here for the Northern District since January, but she has a long life. She's also been, you know, head of the criminal division. She's first assistant U.S. attorney here in the Northern District, so she has quite a bit of experience. Uh, David Augustine Ruiz, he is the first Hispanic judge in this district. He's currently a magistrate judge and an assistant U.S. attorney, so like all of these nominees have a long history of federal service. Um, the uh, last one is is Charles Eskew Fleming. He is the second active black judge, if he were to be uh, confirmed. And he's the only one who served as a federal public defender, which is interesting. So that'll give them an interesting perspective on the cases that come before him. He was an assistant federal public defender for 30 years. These three are three of 53 federal judge nominees that Biden has named. Um, he's trying to catch up to Trump, you know, and I think that that's crucial that Biden make as many federal, you know, judgeships as he can while he while he's in office. So good times. Well, and why he has a Senate that'll confirm him because they right. end at the end of next year. 
I, it is interesting to get a public defender in, in the judge, judicial ranks, largely when people who've practiced in the court move into the judicial area, they're prosecutors. And so mm-hmm. there's a heavy prosecutorial slant. And it's nice to see somebody that's been fighting on the other side who is sympathetic to uh, defendants in, in much more of a, a, a practical way will be sitting on the bench. I hope they all get uh, their... their um, confirmation quickly. Mm-hmm. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who got close enough to five African lions in the Akron Zoo to give them COVID-19? And will the lions be okay? What about the zoo's other big cats? Lord Johnson, whenever I hear that, that these big, ferocious animals in zoos are getting COVID, you just wonder how that could happen, because I wouldn't get near them. Right. Well, you d- does make you think COVID's definitely airborne, right? It's not like there's saliva getting in their mouth, probably. But the lions are believed to be exposed by the staff that was working with them. Maybe it was indoors. Uh, they're supposed to be wearing masks and gloves, uh, but somehow a staff member tested positive, and these lions did too. They tested them after they noticed some mild coughing, sneezing, and decreased appetite in some of the lions. So I, I feel a little bad for these guys. And uh, the Ohio Department of Agriculture's Animal Disease Diagnostic Laboratory found that they had COVID. The good news is none of the other big cats at the Akron Zoo have COVID. Yeah, which you wonder how they're how they're doing that because they probably are taking food trays and things between them. But man, that's uh, that's rough when we're infecting the animals we're supposed to be caring for. Uh, it sounds they're, like they're not going to be in dire straits, right? Right. They seem like they're going to be okay. And there is good news. There is a vaccine for animals hmm. and the uh, Akron Zoo got it. So they're going to be actually giving it to the lions after they recover. But obviously, do you remember one of the first, well, not first big stories, but of a big story at the beginning of COVID was the Bronx Zoo tigers getting COVID. So obviously we've known for a long time that animals can get it. And we had the deer in Ohio were the first in the world to test positive that we knew about. The good news is the risk of contracting COVID from an animal is a lot lower than an animal getting it. Uh, Okay. But hold on, hold on. They have the vaccine for the lions. What, What happens if the lions suffered the same kind of side effects from the vaccine that people did? They wouldn't be very much fun to be around. No. But at least they won't get COVID again. And and they probably won't tell the, the zookeepers, no, I'm not taking it. I, I have a right <laughs> not to take this vaccine. The anti-vax lion patrol at the Akron <laughs> Zoo. Good point. The the animals will have complete uh, vac- vaccination. They'll have, they'll have true herd immunity. You're listening to This Week in this CLE. All right, this is, this is the most fun story of the day. Why did a court rule that a man cannot sue his wife for leaving shoes on the stairs, causing him to fall and break a lot of bones? And second, why would he want to sue his wife? Leila Tassi, this wasn't his wife before he fell. He married her after, and yet he was still suing her. This is bizarre. These are all the legal crazy (laughs) stories today. So this guy, John Walworth, sued his wife, Judy Corey, because in 2018, more than a year before they were married, He was carrying a box of vinegar down the basement steps for his then fiance, and he tripped on a pair of her shoes that she had left on the landing and went tumbling down the stairs. He ended up breaking bones in his leg, arm, hand. He underwent three surgeries and went to physical therapy for several months after this fall, and it racked up $80,000 in medical expenses. So a three-judge panel at the 8th District Court of Appeals on Thursday held that Corey's shoes 
were open and obvious and a person taking reasonable precautions would have been able to spot them. And so the court upheld the lower court's ruling, granting Corey summary judgment. And Walworth's attorney had argued that Corey created these dangerous conditions in her home and failed her duty as a host to protect her guests from these conditions. And then attorneys from her home insurance company argued on her behalf that anyone paying attention would have seen the shoes on the floor, even even though she conceded during a deposition that she thinks it was her fault that he fell. So obviously what's crazy about this case is that this couple got married after the fall and they remain married despite this lawsuit. That plus the fact that she was represented by lawyers from the insurance company. Yeah, it's pretty strongly to me that at the heart of this case was an insurance claim, right? (laughs) Yeah, I checked with Corey Schaefer, who wrote this story, and said, "Is this? He's just going after his wife's insurance company. Just bizarre, though. I mean, I, I mean, you don't see many husbands and wives suing each other like this in court, and over kind of embarrassing stuff. She asked him to take the vinegar downstairs. She said she always left her shoes on the stairs. I mean, it's just, it's one of those that you sit back and say, huh? And that headline rolled across yesterday. It was the, it was the, the talker story. I, I'm sure." We've all had experiences where we've wanted to sue our, our spouses or partners. <laughs> well, can I say, though, that... Lisa Garvin. I, nobody should leave their shoes on the stairs. Come on. That's the one of the worst <laughs> fall hazards there is. And on the basement stairs, the guy's carrying a case of vinegar down the stairs. How is he even going to see those shoes? Honestly, I mean, I'm not, like, trying to take sides here. But, you know, falling in your house is so... It's so common and it can be so damaging. And she just leaves her shoes on the stairs. I'm what, uh, what, Layla, did you say you wanted to sue your kids? Did I hear you correctly? Well, they leave stuff on the stairs all the oh, time. and you Everywhere. Know, if we could just sue our children. <laughs> sue them. Never picking up anything. And well, like, yeah. And if I could go after sink, my own insurance company. And... Right. Okay. It's uh, for all the listeners of the podcast. It's Friday. We're all a little loopy. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the latest beloved Cleveland institution to change a beloved name that has been in place for 100 years? Lisa Garvin, we are not talking about the Cleveland Indians. I don't really want to ever talk about that name change again, but we have another one, and it'll be interesting to see if we get the same level of outrage. I don't think so. This is not a drastic name change, so don't panic, people. It's not like the Quicken Loan Severance Hall or whatever. But no, what happened was is that they got a $50 million grant from the Jack, Joseph, and Morton Mandel Foundation. Uh, this will be a big help for them because they've been under-endowed for quite a long time. As a matter of fact, probably about two-thirds of this uh, grant will go towards adding to their endowment to get to their goal of $400 million. But back to the name... It's going to be called Severance Music Center. That is the building itself. And so obviously the name on the carved on the front probably will not change. But the stage on which the main stage on which the orchestra performs will be called the Mandel Concert Hall, which I think is it's a nice nod to people who gave them the biggest gift in their history. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, don't panic. It's, It's not a big deal. Severance, the severance name is still there. I don't know. I, 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 I saw some uh, social media chatter. And while there were some people saying, look, it's worth 50 million to change the name. There were a bunch of people going, come on, why, why can't you honor the Mandels by naming the inside hall for them and maintain this historic name? Part of the problem with Severance Music Center 
is in Cleveland Heights, there is Severance Town Center. Oh. It's kind of this squalid mall that hasn't done well. And so every time you hear Severance Center, I think many people are going to think about that. Oh, that yeah. I didn't I, I'll be interested that. to see. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if people get bent out of shape about it or if they figure like $50 million is such a nice boost for the orchestra that that it's it's worth changing the name. I'm a little bit surprised that they went in that direction, but we will have to see. I don't know. The, the, the Layla, Lara, you're, you're, you're loopy today. You have any thoughts on changing the name? <laughs> I, I, sadly, I have never been inside Severance Hall. Isn't that pathetic? <gasps> wow. So, wow. I know. I need I need to go at some point. But I, you do wonder why they couldn't have just kept Severance Hall and then made it the Mandel concert venue or something like why they had to why they had to change the name just for the the yeah. you know the addition of the mandel name i kind of feel like if the if the issue was that you don't want hall twice associated with the facility just get a thesaurus and pick a different word <laughs> right stage you know <laughs> is yeah. that hard i mean don't i don't know yeah i'll, I'll be interested to see what the reaction is i'm sure it will not be as wild and crazy as the Indians, because let's face it, they're orchestra fans. They're going to be civilized and, <laughs> and nice about their disagreement. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is the major new painting that the Cleveland Museum of Art has acquired and what makes it so rare and special? Laura, we're talking about the arts today. Steve Litt had an interesting story on this one. Yeah, I like that I just admitted I'd never been in Severance Hall. Now I'm going to pretend that I'm an art um, <laughs> out here. But uh, this is because this is a big deal because this painter is the only impressionist the museum did not have in its collection. And he has a very small body of work because he died really young, 28 years old in the Franco-Prussian War. His name is Frederic Bazil, and he had painted a remarkably fresh and lifelike portrait of Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Obviously, he's a probably a little bit better known of an impressionist. So um, Basil had moved to Paris in 1862 to study medicine, but he decided he'd rather be an artist. He met uh, Claude Monet, Alfred Sisley, and he was very good at depicting large groups of people in natural light, which is one of the tenets of Impressionism. The, there, there were a bunch of other things that they yes. acquired, too. What are some of those? So um, Steve Litt wrote up all of this, and, and he's got some very interesting descriptions of what they all are. But there's an impressive pair of 18th century Japanese screen paintings by the artist Watanabe Shiko. There's some pre-Columbian objects that originated among peoples living in present-day Peru. There's a portrait drawing from the 1630s by French artist Simon Bouet and five photographs depicting black life in America from the 1950s to the 1970s by Sean Walker and Chester A. Higgins Jr. But it seems that the Impressionist painting was the one that got the most excitement in part because his work rarely goes on the market because it's really small and it's it's tough to find. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see that one. Yeah, we, the 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 Museum of Art has been in the news because of the they brought out four of their uh, paintings. Um, the Monet. To, yeah. the, uh, oh, sorry, Monet? Van Gogh. Van yeah, Gogh. Van Gogh. <laughs> um, you were going to go to the Van Gogh thing. Have you done it yet? Uh, no, I'm not going till November. But I, you know, you keep seeing it pop up on social media, and we've talked about you know whether it's worth it. That's fifty dollar charge, and. From the, what I see, people are really happy that they're going. No, so. oh, I've seen the opposite. I've seen oh, no? a lot of people saying they're underwhelmed for the yeah, money they spent. I've seen that too. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. It does make you realize what a gem we have in the Museum of Art and that it's free. Obviously, they do charge for their extra special exhibits, but that you can go see this really rare artwork without paying a dime. Yeah, but I, what, what I feel like with this interactive exhibit, it's like going to epcot center to go into independence <laughs> hall instead of taking your kids to independence hall right you, you can go to the museum and see actual van gogh paintings or you can go to the disney version and and spend a lot of money and you know it fits in the disney model because it's really expensive you're listening <laughs> and it has a lot of gift shops right <laughs> yeah a lot, right, a lot of expensive <laughs> gift shops it's the, the disney version of art come and see it in cleveland you're listening to this week in the cle has the child care crisis gotten any better since the pandemic began or are things getting worse for parents who need people they can trust to watch their children? Well, Tassi, I was a little bit surprised that what, by what Hannah Drown found. I didn't realize that this had not improved. Yes, it's, it continues to be a serious problem. Hannah listened in on a virtual panel discussion of Ohio business owners and industry experts about how the state can recover from the child care crisis that the pandemic created. And they said that this is a cycle. Workers can't find or afford childcare, forcing them to stay out of the workforce. And that overall worker shortage eventually trickles down to childcare centers too. And that leads to diminished capacity for kids at those childcare centers. And so then the cycle starts all over again. And about half of American families are living in childcare deserts, which are places where for every registered childcare slot, there are at least three children seeking childcare. And one healthcare industry recruiter said that the childcare shortage has contributed to the worst shortage of workers in her industry that she's seen in her 25-year career. So it sounded like the solutions they discussed involved federal and state partnerships to fund affordable childcare. But, you know, this is such a serious crisis. And for politicians who want to see people returning to the workforce, maybe address this need instead of slashing unemployment benefits to force people back into low paying jobs. I mean, I'm just saying, right. I mean, that this is yes. one of the, the key factors to why so many industries are having a hard time filling their payrolls. Was it, is aftercare after school care also a problem? Do you know? I mean, Laura, you, do you have some experience with that in your personal life? I do. I actually started a petition to get it in Rocky River a couple years ago. And I think it depends what kind of job you're working, right? Like right now, my kids aren't using aftercare because we're we're both home working. And if you ever see me on a Zoom call after three o'clock, you will probably see my kids <laughs> annoying me. But I, this is huge. Like during the pandemic, um, the child care center we had used went out of business. And so I think they're down to two child care centers in Rocky River, which to me is just, I don't even know what it's like if you're looking for childcare right now. It must be awful because we were on a, a wait list for six months when we moved here. And I've talked to friends that are in healthcare and that's one of the huge reasons that we don't have enough nurses right now. And, you, you know, obviously that's a crisis. So it, it, you're right. It affects everything. And I've written a couple op-eds about this saying this is not a mom problem. This isn't even a family problem. Like this is a community problem and we need to think about it as affecting everyone. Although it does. We've had stories about this, both done locally and nationally, that say it does fall on the moms much more than anybody else. And it's hurt women in the workforce. It's, I'm it's just saying it the... shouldn't be. Like, this should not be a problem that one person should have to solve. 
for the, I mean, in, in a small micro way, yeah, you got to fix it for your family, but people have to realize the implications affect everyone. And, and, and what's disturbing about this is we're 18 months into this pandemic and it's not any better. Things have actually gotten worse. So good story by Hannah, check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to this week in the CLE What's the change happening at the lodge at Geneva on the Lake that has some people worried? Laura Jensen, I've never been here, but it's, but everybody who has says it's a jewel and there's a lot of fear that it's about to go downhill. Why? Yes. And I can tell you, I've actually been here. So this, this is what I can talk about from experience, but the state is taking over. And so people really want to make sure that it stays up to its current standards, that the business run, running it is Delaware North. They run places in Yellowstone and some other national parks, I believe. And they have a really high standard. People like this lodge. They just opened a whole new pool with an outdoor bar right on the lake this summer. And it, it has one of the most expensive rates in the state for their state park system, well above the $200 a night. It's helped out this town of Geneva on the lake. It's helped out the winery industry in Ohio. They have shuttles running all the time. They have um, zip lines and and high ropes courses and kayaking, and they just want to make sure that it stays the gem that it has been and it doesn't kind of fall into disrepair. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, the county actually built this, right? That they that they wanted this lodge and so that they invested the money and built it and with, with cooperation from the state and have been running it ever since, right? That's the right. way. And so they still have about $14 million in remaining construction debt that they would have to pay off if it didn't go to the state. Now the state's going to be responsible for that. So does the county want to offload management of it to the state? Are people in Geneva on the lake happy that they're offloading the debt or would they have preferred to keep it? Is the state I think it's a really it? mixed bag. I think some county officials are supportive of the transfer because they want to save the money, but a lot of the tourism and the local government officials are really concerned that this is going to, you know, they're not going to have such a bright spot. Was the did the state bigfoot it? Did the state just take it over, or was it was it? No, this was in a bill, I believe, like that got passed. It wasn't like the state was like, "Hey, hey, we should own this." If somebody asked for it, so so local government said, "We've got to get out of this. Can we please get a law passed that this will be taken over by the state?" Yeah, there was some controversy over it when it went to the state this summer, but it passed. Hmm. Okay, and you've been there. You say it's lovely. It is lovely. I got to do the zipline tour, which was really cool. And Susan Glazer, our travel writer, went up there and wrote about it this week. And she said, I love this because it sounded like Susan is my kind of vacation partner. It's like three o'clock. She was riding a bike. Four o'clock. She was floating in the pool. And by five o'clock, she was having a drink, you know, on the patio. And I was like, I want a vacation with Susan. Like <laughs> she's, she's my type of partner. Right. Because on Tuesday, you vacuum. <laughs> It's this week in the CLE. We'll give you a few minutes back today, a little bit short. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Have a great weekend. We'll be back Monday to talk about the news.